The Bible reading this morning is in two parts, Exodus 3 and John 8. Exodus 3 verses 1 to 15 can be found on page 57 of the Pew Bibles. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you. That is, it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And from John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59, which can be found on page 1073. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my Father, and you dishonour me. I am not seeking glory for myself, 
but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you did not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abram was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you we can be here. We thank you for your word, and Lord, I pray as we come to it today that you would speak into our hearts so that we would have a confidence about knowing you through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that in his name. Amen. Well, the topic for today is Jesus, true God, where in the, at the end of chapter 8 of John, and I want to speak to us as we think about Jesus being the true God to, to start with about confidence. Um, confidence is a thing that when you need it, um, often you don't have it uh, and you can be low on it and it's a very kind of elusive quality when you've got it, it can make all the difference in your life and you'll see people who are not confident, you'll see people who are confident and the way they present themselves can be very different and health researchers have noted that confidence has an enormous impact on us uh, when we have a self-confidence, um, it increases our performance, athletes, entrepreneurs, politicians, public speakers, actors, in a whole range of areas, uh, if they haven't got confidence, it massively impacts them. If they have got confidence, it also greatly increases their performance. It will greatly impact how you work. Um, increased confidence will actually make you happier and more satisfied with your life compared to people who lack confidence. Um, it typically helps you to be socially at ease uh, because you're self-confident, you're more relaxed in social settings, you'll meet new people, you're not afraid. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et now I'm not Tony Robbins. I'm not here to give you a self-help seminar. Uh, it's worth saying that as we start. But I do want to say, uh, confidence absolutely affects us, and particularly as Christians. The way you have a confidence in your faith, or lack thereof, will absolutely affect the way you live out your faith. And being confident, I think, comes from having a confidence about knowing who Jesus Christ is. It's where all of our, if I can say, our faith is built from and stems from. Knowing with, if I can say, a surety, with a confidence 
that he is who he says he is and that he is the true son of God who's come and revealed God to us. And we're looking this morning at a fascinating passage. It's John chapter 8, verse 48 to 59. It's the end of a long dialogue between Jews and Jesus. And at issue really is his identity. And at the very middle of this passage, there's this kind of question that the Jews ask, and they're stunned by what they've heard Jesus say. And they they just kind of take a step back and go, actually, who do you think you are? And that is the question that we need to look at this morning. Who do we think Jesus is? And I want us to be encouraged not to be like the Jews who kind of step back with a real note of kind of wonder and cynicism. Who do you think you are? But rather to have a confidence about who Jesus is and for that to assist you, to warm you, to sharpen you. And I've got two visual objects this morning, which I'm going to use later on. Uh, It's a a rug, which I'm going to put on, and I'm going to uh, help us to remember today's sermon by the rug, and also a steel. I'll come to that later. In this passage, John chapter 8, Jesus has made two, if I can say, incredible claims for people to take hold of. First is, He is the light of the world. Whoever follows Him will never walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. And so it's a a wonderful promise to take hold of. He is the light of the world for us. Also, he says, if you follow my teaching, you'll be set free. And so we find life, we find light, we find freedom in knowing Christ. But can we be confident about that? Well, the back end of this passage, he basically sums up his argument about who he is. He's like the defence barrister summing up at the end of the trial. And he effectively says, the problem with you Jews is you actually don't know who I am. And because of that, you actually don't know God. You think you do, but you don't. And who I am is the great I am of Israel. And what he does here is he gives us three claims, really which is all about his claim to be from God and is God. And I couldn't help but think of the great English writer C.S. Lewis. When discussing the topic of the identity of Jesus Christ and dialoguing with people who didn't want to entertain the thought that he was God, his famous quote runs like this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. In other words, when you actually listen to what Jesus says, you can't put him in the category and box him and reduce him to just being a great moral teacher. Lewis continues, he would either be a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, classic Lewis phrase, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. Now, when C.S. Lewis wrote that great quote and so famous, there's no doubt he could have been looking at this exact passage we're looking at today to inspire him. Because Jesus makes three outrageous claims. The first is he makes divine promises. Secondly, he claims to have divine life. And thirdly, he claims to have a divine identity. Let's have a look at each three. Firstly, he makes divine promises. 
This, as I said, is at the end of an interchange between Jesus and the Jews who doubted him. And we pick it up at verse 48. If you've got your Bibles there, page 1073, you can follow through the dialogue and the kind of debate that goes on. 1073, John 8, 48, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and a demon-possessed person? Now, if you wanted to put someone down as a Jew, uh, this is an excellent way to do it basically accuse them of being from the devil and being a, if I can say, racial half-caste. You're a Samaritan. Uh, and it was a great racial slur to use that phrase. And they say that because as they've listened to Jesus, they think this makes no sense. You must be inspired by the devil. And if you're inspired by the devil, well, you actually can't be a true Jew. So therefore, QED, you actually must be a Samaritan. You can't be one of us. And in verses 49 to 51, Jesus responds by saying, well, actually, I'm not demon-possessed, rather, I'm honouring my Father. And I'm not seeking glory for myself, the Father actually does that. And then he makes this first outrageous claim. And it is outrageous. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who keeps my word, well, they will never see death. Now, I want you to think if you heard someone say that today particularly if you were grappling with death, with illness, and they said, actually, if you keep my word, you're not going to see death. You'd think, are you kidding me? You don't have that power. That's the sort of claim that only God can make. In fact, if you had that power, if I had that power, I wouldn't be worth billions, I'd be worth trillions. If I could say, follow my words and you won't encounter death. There was a trillion dollar company back in August last year. It was the Apple company. They became the first trillion dollar company when its stock price hit 207 US dollars and I think 42 cents. Um, they got a profit report and it went down. They're no longer trillion dollars. Uh, that's the fate of the stock market. But they made an enormous amount of money on gadgets that we buy. And I suspect most people here or in your family will have some sort of Apple product. It made them trillions. But can you imagine the price tag if you could help someone beat death? What you'd be worth? You would far exceed the spending on electronic gadgets that's made Apple a trillion dollar company. And the Jews exclaim at verse 52, now we know that you're demon-possessed. In other words, that's just outrageous to claim that. Abraham died, so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Like, and you can hear the kind of incredulous tone in their voice. Are you kidding me? Are you greater than their father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Well, who do you think you are? very good question to ask who is this Jesus who do you think he is and it's worth noting on three separate occasions in John's gospel the Jews react to what Jesus was saying by claiming that Jesus was making himself out to be divine or to be God chapter 5 verse 18 for this reason they tried all the more to kill him not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. 
later in John chapter 10, we'll come to that. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And then when they put him on trial, the issue which drove the trial was this issue. Chapter 19, verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And the Jews know exactly what Jesus is making out here with these outrageous claims. This first one with divine promises that only God could make. The second one is, he makes this incredible statement that he has a divine life. Just as the power to beat death is priceless, the quest to live forever is an ancient quest. You only have to go back to, if I can say, the Egyptians uh, with their whole procedure and belief in mummification and their pursuit of, if I can say, an eternal life beyond death. To see that this is a very ancient quest, it's also a very modern one. I don't know if you know that, but in Silicon Valley today, billions of dollars are effectively being spent on this quest. And one of the leaders for the movement is this lady on the screen, Maritine Rothblatt. Now, she is a founder of a biotech firm called United Therapeutics. Now, it's fascinating, I was reading about her, uh, and her work is described in terms of this area as working on the prospect of technological immortality via mind uploading and geoethical nanotechnology. Now, I guess if you've got that kind of phrase, you can get billions of dollars money raised. Now, they just did a recent fundraiser, I think it was two years ago, and they raised $116 million for their research. People like Jeff Bezos of Amazon, very interested in the pursuit of the longer life. But it's her quote that really captured my attention. Clearly, it is possible, Martine Rothblatt said, through technology to make death optional. Now, just read that and make your own assessment about what you think. Uh, Is this starry-eyed optimism in the power of science? Maybe. Is it blindness that ignores reality? Well, quite possibly. In fact, that is what I think it is. But whatever you think, the quest to live forever is still alive and well in some parts of the world today. And it's into this context, Jesus' words resonate. You see... They're incredulous about his claims and he replies in this way, well, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. But you're not 50 years old. The Jews said to him, have you seen Abraham? Do you see what Jesus is saying? He was there before Abraham. Now, Abraham is the great father of the people of God. He is the first person called by God on this journey of salvation. He is the father of many nations, so to speak. He is the father of the people of God. And Jesus is saying here, I do know him. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not 50 years old, but have you seen him? 
Do you hear what Jesus is claiming? He's claiming to have existed before Abraham. In other words, he has an eternal life. In the book of Revelation, it describes him as the Alpha, the Omega, the one who is without end, from eternity to eternity. And it just kind of rattles off his tongue. Actually, yeah, I've seen Abraham. Now, that's why C.S. Lewis says, when you listen to his claims, don't say he's a good moral teacher. He's either a complete madman, to say this, he's either completely inspired by the devil, or actually, he's the living son of God. He doesn't give you any other options. And then we come to his third claim, to have a divine identity. And it's kind of the stinger in the tail. He says, actually, in verse 58, I tell you the truth. The old versions used to say, verily, verily, I say unto you. And what is being noted there is, actually, I'm speaking with real authority now. Listen to what I'm saying. I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. And note the response at this, they picked up stones to stone him, because Je but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And they went to stone him because what he was saying is blasphemous. Now, the self-description that Jesus uses here of I am is no doubt unfamiliar and insignificant for many modern readers of the Bible and perhaps many of us here today. Particularly those who are not familiar with the story of Moses and the book of Exodus. Now, I had that read by Graham this morning. Because what Jesus is doing here is he actually is quoting God, the God and Father of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, the God who revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh. Now, I'll just do a little tiny history lesson here and a Hebrew lesson. Um, you can see there at the bottom phrase, I am who I am. It's where the name Yahweh comes from. And it's a most significant revelation because it's at this point God gave his name to the people of God. I am who I am. And it was so revered when they made the copies of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, but the Jewish scriptures. Uh, there's a group of people called the Masorites and they copied and copied and made copies and copies. And the original texts of the Hebrew didn't have consonants in there and they put the sorry the vowels in there to help you read it better but what they refused to do was put that in there for the word Yahweh it just sits there with the capital letters and the consonants and it's this incredibly special name and what Jesus does is he picks up that name and he says actually that's me now, he's quoting, and what we have here is in the Greek language, and it's an exact copy of the Greek translation of Exodus in a book that's called the LXX. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, why do I mention this? Because at the end of this argument where he's giving all these arguments about why he can promise divine life, uh, he has divine life and makes divine promise, he says, actually, when you think about your God, Yahweh, actually, that's me. I am. Now, it, it is brazen. And to the Jews of the day, it was absolutely clear what he was saying. I am Yahweh. Now, to kill a person for blasphemy, you'd normally take it to trial with the priests. 
They are so outraged, they pick the rocks up straight away and they want to do him in there and then. Let me put it together. When you're reading John's Gospel, the thing that you just cannot move away from, the thing that is confronting, the thing that's front and centre is this identity of who Jesus is. And we've got to ask the question, who do we say He is? And when you listen to Him, what He says to us is, actually, I'm God. And I possess all the qualities I've been from eternity, I'll be to eternity, I've always existed. I've in fact got the power over life and death. I am Yahweh. And he defines that as being the son of the father. And that's the revelation of the gospel. It's why the gospel begins, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And I want to ask the question, if that is true, and the reason I believe it's true is because, you see, he didn't just make promises, he went and fulfilled them. And you just think of the death and the resurrection that he demonstrated in his own person, death had no hold on him. His life keeps going, even through death, which has no hold on him. He is the one from eternity to eternity. He is the living Son of God who's come amongst us. And the question I want to ask is, what difference does this make to us this morning? How will this affect you when you leave here and tomorrow you wake up in the morning? I want to give you a few thoughts. Firstly, I want you to think about the cultural context that we live in, for which, if I can say, we hold this belief within this culture. Because the culture we stand in and live in is not one that is friendly to this idea. Now, I've just got up on the screen there the stats from the ABS 2016 Australian Bureau of Statistics um, survey, the census. And this is just on religious data. This is for Australia. 45% of people broadly identify with Christianity, though it's worth saying only a third of them will come to church, if I can say semi-regularly or regularly. 14% are spiritual but not religious. 32% the growing number, and it's actually higher in manly, that number, profess no religion and 9% are other religions and so if you put that together what you've got is a context with it says this uh, we are pluralistic and relativistic there is no one right way is what our culture will hold there are lots of options yes you might be part of mainstream belief but let me realize that there's lots of other ways people believe and there's other people who don't believe the one absolute that you must believe is that no one has a hold on absolute truth. But even to say that, that is contradictory because they're making an absolute claim. And when you walk out the door, what that does to us is in this culture which is pluralistic and relativistic in terms of everything is relative, there's no absolutes, it blunts your faith. And it chills your faith. I'll give you one example. Uh, one of the great pushes politically at the moment is to get rid of Scripture in schools. And this is not something that's happened overnight. It's been going for quite a few years. 
And there's a number of people and forces that would absolutely want to remove uh, what's called special edu religious education from our state school system. And even though I'm a great believer in it, and I think there's great benefits for all who come and do it, uh, there's a group called the Fairness in Religion in Schools for heading up a push to get rid of SRE. Now, it's interesting to note what they're against. They're not against necessarily having religion taught to children. What they're against is special religious education. In other words, unique religious education. They're against, if I can say, practitioners like myself or people like Paul Searle, Susie McDonald, teaching special religious education from a position of belief that this is the right way. And it's not just for us they're critiquing, it's also for people of other faiths. They want it to be levelled down where it's just teach, taught by the state school teachers and they just give you a broad range of different options because underlying it all is this sense that they're all relative. You can't say one is the right way, which is what we absolutely do believe. And so the culture we live in is one that keeps saying to us, no, the gospel is not the revelation of the unique Son of God. And we must have an absolute confidence that it is. That Christmas is not just some nice, warm, fuzzy story. Actually, it's the entrance of God Almighty into history in the most humblest of forms. And here you meet this in the person of Jesus who speaks to us about his identity. And I want to say it makes two profound differences when you actually have a confidence that Christ is the unique revelation of God. Now let me just say it's one of the most humbling truths to know that God Almighty has actually come amongst us. And more than that, he's come for us in spite of who we are and our failings. And he's opened our eyes to become his children. And we absolutely need to have a confidence in that. Now, let me tell you one of my idiosyncrasies. Um, I feel the cold. Absolutely. Uh, blankets are my friend. And... You'll often see me at the moment, even though it might be 31 degrees outside, riding down with a jacket on. And it doesn't bother me at all. And I know some of the staff think I'm a bit peculiar. Scott's nodding his head, yep. Uh, and I do that because we've got air conditioning and I actually just freeze. And it just does not bother me being warm. I freeze, I hate the cold. Um, and I love blankets. Now, this one is one we have uh, for those from the soup kitchen. I just went and got it out of the cupboard. Um, and the thing with blankets is you've got to wrap yourself in them. And there's nothing nicer than, honestly, sitting in front of telly, wrapped up in a blanket, or just, you know, in a warm... Oh, I love our duck feather quilt doing it. It's just so good. Now, why do I mention this? When you really get this, that... Jesus is the unique revelation of God. You need to wrap yourself in this teaching, this doctrine, this revelation. Because it, it guards you. you actually, it's your confidence. My confidence as a person who follows God is in Christ. That's where my confidence is. My confidence is in 
the revelation that God himself has come amongst us. My confidence is that I can, can proclaim to you that there actually is a life eternal. That I can take funerals and actually offer hope to people who are dying in Christ. To the sick and suffering. We can say there is a life beyond the grave if you turn to Christ. And I'm confident because I know that the living God has come amongst us in Christ. And I need to wrap myself in this understanding. And it warms me. I love that photo of the dog up there in the blanket. And it warms my heart. And it's profound. That I've had my eyes open to this. And one of the most repeated phrases by the Apostle Paul to describe a Christian is that you are in Christ. And you find your whole life in Him. One of the great markers of a person actually being converted is you just see how they talk about Jesus. Because they've found life in Him, the unique Son of God. So when you go home, and I know it's the middle of summer and you probably aren't going to go and put, wrap yourself in a blanket. But just remember, whenever you see a blanket, wrap yourself in Christ. But the other thing is, this doctrine sharpens you. As soon as you walk out the door, the message is relative. It's plural. It says, don't get too carried away with this. Yeah, you can have your kind of a spiritual sense. It might give you some values, but don't go overboard. Please don't go overboard. I mean, to be a fanatical Christian and want others to become Christian, it's not very cool these days. Don't base your life around it. Just have it as a part. It's only when you are confident that the living God in Christ has come amongst us in the person of His Son that you will have a sharpness about your faith. And if you ever watch a chef, I've got one of these, it's a diamond-crusted steel. They will use it if they're working in the kitchen, cutting meat, they'll use it about every 10 minutes. They'll just do a couple of slides, just to keep the edge. Because they want to keep sharp with their work. And this doctrine is like a steel as well as a blanket. It sharpens you so that when you walk out the door, you go, actually, I'm someone who has had the living God reveal himself to me in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to keep sharpening your faith every day because this culture will blunt it and slowly erode it. When I see people fall away in their faith, it's never dramatically, it's because their faith has been eroded slowly and blunted and the sharpness is gone. When I see people leading unproductive lives and just sitting in pews and turning up occasionally, it's because their faith has been blunted. When I see people alive in Christ, there's a sharpness, there's a conviction that comes because they know that they have met the living God in Christ. And let me just give you one example. All of us tomorrow are going to go out and have to make decisions. 
Um, some of them are going to be very insignificant. Should I have one coffee, two coffees? Should I have an Earl Grey tea or an English breakfast tea? I mean, they're trivial questions, really. But there's going to be other questions where there's actually great significance. Do I confess what I've done wrong? Um, at work, do we make a decision that's in the short term actually going to be not good for us, but it's actually the right thing to do under God? There's going to be all sorts of decisions that you have to make every day. And our ethical framework flows out of a conviction that there is a God who is over us, who has ordered this world, who one day I'm going to be accountable to. And so I can't compartmentalize my life and say, well, I've got a spiritual life here, but I've got this other part where it doesn't matter how I live. Actually, no, there is one God over us who has revealed himself to us, who I've found life in, and actually I've got to let that God order my entire existence, even if it's uncomfortable. My encouragement is, you know, if you live God's way, even the uncomfortable moments work out for the best long term. When we cheat and bend what God says, it never works out for the best long term. And so every morning, when you go down to the kitchen and you see your knives, ask the question, are you sharp today? Warm in your heart and sharp, convicted that Christ has come amongst us as the living God and that he's opened your eyes so that you know him and serve him. Friends, there is not many gods. There's many religions the profound thing is, the one God has come amongst us. And the Jews of the day just couldn't come to grips with it. It seemed outrageous, it seemed ridiculous, it seemed impossible that this person called Jesus would be the great I Am, who would have lived forever and had power over life and death itself. But friends, that's who we follow in this world. And when you know that, it will absolutely transform you. When you're confident in that, it will shape your life for eternity. Let us pray. I want to just give us a moment just to be quiet and to respond. You may just want to say thank you for God opening your eyes to this great truth. You may want to pray, Lord, help me to know you. Today has opened my eyes to who you might be. You might want to pray, Lord, sharpen my convictions, give me confidence in you. Warm my heart through the knowledge of Christ. I'll let you respond. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us this day that you would warm our hearts with this knowledge that we have had a true revelation of the living God in the person of Jesus. Fill our hearts with joy and peace in believing, but let there also be conviction, a sharpness to our faith that we do serve the living God as we go out into this world.
May it sharpen our witness, our work. May it guide our life, our families. May the truth that Christ is the one over us as well as in us give us great confidence to live for you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.